Chapter 7, Part 1 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 1 Return to England, 1869. In 1869, the early pioneer work in America was ended. During the twenty years which followed the graduation of the first woman physician, the public recognition of the justice and advantage of such a measure had steadily grown. Throughout the northern states, the free and equal entrance of women into the profession of medicine was secured. In Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, special medical schools for women were sanctioned by the legislatures, and in some long-established colleges, women were received as students in the ordinary classes. Our New York Center was well organized under able guidance, and I determined to return to England for a temporary, though prolonged, residence, both to renew physical strength, which had been severely tried, and to enlarge my experience of life, as well as to assist in the pioneer work so bravely commencing in London, and which extended later into Edinburgh. I soon found that social questions of vital importance to human progress were taking root in the prepared soil of the older civilization, questions which were of absorbing interest. During the following twenty years, the responsibility of the Christian physician assumed to me an ever-deepening significance. After a refreshing tour in the lovely Lake District, arranged by my old friend Herman Bicknell, we attended the Social Science Congress held in Bristol in September of 1869. This was indeed a noteworthy experience. I was the guest with Miss Mary Carpenter of her relations Mr. and Mrs. Thomas. One morning Miss Carpenter came into my room with her hands full of papers, saying, these papers refer to a subject that you must take up. It is to be discussed at a sectional meeting today, from which all women are excluded. But you, as a doctor, have a right to be present, and will be admitted, and you must attend. This formed my introduction to that tremendous campaign against the unequal standard of sexual morality known as the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts, in which, for the following seventeen years, I was to take an active part, and which, from its extended bearings, molded the whole of my future life. The study of the papers thus brought to my notice by Miss Carpenter was a revelation to me. Perhaps happily for me, during my past life and medical experiences, I had never fully realized the wide bearing of this subject and the inevitable social degradation produced by a double standard of morality. My eyes were now suddenly opened never to be closed again, to that direful purchase of women which is really the greatest obstacle to the progress of the race. 
ignorant as i then was of the various aspects of the contagious diseases acts i instantly perceived their injustice and at once accepted the difficult mission miss carpenter laid upon me it was hoped by some members of the congress that a resolution would be passed supporting the one-sided contagious diseases acts legislation against which a strong opposition was beginning to arise and i resolved that the voice of one member of the congress at any rate should support the foundation of morality viz equal justice i therefore attended the section held at the blind asylum sitting far back in that assemblage of men i soon found however to my immense relief and gratitude that the cause of justice was in able and vigorous male hands led by professor francis newman so i gladly withdrew from a painful position in that sectional meeting my advocacy not being needed i was privileged at this time to make the acquaintance of the rev charles kingsley and his generous-hearted wife on our first meeting at an evening party mr kingsley overwhelmed me by his enthusiastic greeting you are one of my heroes he said a speech which i really could not then understand it seemed to stun me in my quiet life later as i learned to know his enthusiastic character and profound social insight i knew his meaning a sincere personal friendship was then begun he supported me by constant and wise counsel until the time of his lamented death which was indeed a severe personal loss i was warmly welcomed to the rectory of eversley and later to the deanery of chester on the pleasant and historic pine hills of bramshill by the eversley parsonage and on the ancient walls of chester with their noble outlook to the welsh mountains when visiting the deanery i enjoyed memorable walks with this generous-hearted man when he threw open his delightful stores of natural history and strengthened me by his social wisdom an amusing personal experience at the bristol congress was a breakfast of all the religions organized by my eccentric friend herman bicknell and at which he insisted that i should help him preside he said to me holyoke is an atheist cowell stepney a materialist bonerger and chatterjay are of the hindu brahma somage you are a christian and i am a catholic it will be a most remarkable gathering and the discussion of such varied opinions extremely interesting i accepted the queer invitation the breakfast was held in a large parlor of the hotel we assembled at table and one of the first things the very deaf gentleman on my right hand said to me was what an extraordinary odd notion that of a soul is i wonder how it could have arisen but the most interesting remark by far was made by holyoke who returning from a secularist meeting of bristol working men was at once accosted by our host 
Now, Holyoke, pray let us have your famous demonstration of the non-existence of a god. Mr. Holyoke accepted the demand, and thought for some time in a profound silence. Then, with a puzzled face, he suddenly burst out, Upon my word, Bicknell, I have really quite forgotten it. Mr. Kingsley once said to me, pointing to Holyoke, That man, many years ago, I put into prison for blasphemy. Now I am begging him to come down and visit me at Eversley. Our breakfast of all the religions as an active contest was a failure. The hostile forces met together, but instead of fighting, they fraternized. It was during this visit to Bristol in 1869 that the curious experience, already referred to on page four, occurred, when I visited the house where my early childhood was spent. On settling in London as a physician, I resided for some time with my valued friend Barbara Lee Smith, then Madame Bodicon, at whose house in Blandford Square I met her wide and varied circle of literary and artistic friends and many leaders of social reform. Herbert Spencer, Dante Rossetti, Mrs. Lewis, the Peter Taylors, Mrs. Crawshay, Miss Goldsmith, Miss Cobby, and Keshab Chunder Sen represent a few of the persons I was privileged to meet. At this time, I had engaged medical consultation rooms in an apparently respectable house in York Place, on the front door of which the house agent allowed me to place my name. I soon found, however, that my doctor's sign was intended to conceal the dubious character of the occupier of the house, and I had unconsciously walked into a trap. But friends came to the rescue and compelled the cancelling of the lease with which I was entangled. I then established myself at number six Burwood Place, where the commencement of a promising medical practice was soon formed. I eagerly entered upon the varied and intensely interesting social life now opened to me. My long-cherished conviction of the supreme importance of the medical profession as the great conservator of health constantly deepened. In 1870, being invited to address the Working Woman's College, I took as the subject of my discourse how to keep a household in health. This lecture laid down rules of health for the guidance of poor women in the management of their households, and was welcomed by the audience. One person present, however, sent a slanderous account of this lecture to the Paul Mall Gazette, and I was overwhelmed by the receipt of anonymous letters and letters from persons in all classes of society requesting medical advice on the most important and delicate subjects, subjects which are only suitable for the confidential counsel of the physician's consulting room, where alone advice adapted to each individual case can be judiciously given. I mentioned this experience of the newspaper attack 
and the subsequent correspondence to my friend Mr. Kingsley. He exclaimed, Oh, you did not answer those letters, I trust. I assured him that I had always refused to give the advice asked for by letter, and had invariably returned fees when enclosed. Thank God for that, he exclaimed, with an energy that amazed me and he then related to me a very painful experience of his own, saying, Let me warn you, never answer a newspaper attack. There are some newspapers that delight in getting a hold of a scandal, or whatever may make their paper sell, and are utterly unscrupulous as to the means by which such a purpose is accomplished. You have no chance against such corrupt speculation, your only weapon is silence and your own established character. On February 19, 1871, under the auspices of the Sunday Lecture Society, I gave an address on the religion of health to a large appreciative audience in St. George's Hall. The same year a small meeting was held in the drawing-room of Six Burwood Place, to consider the important subject of a steady and wide diffusion of sanitary knowledge among all the people. There the National Health Society was formed, for which Mr. Prout Newcomb, who was present, shaped the stamp of the society with its motto, Prevention is better than cure. This society, which established its first office in Berners Street, under the intelligent secretaryship of Miss Tolman Smith, continues its enlarging sphere of usefulness under the able management of Miss Fay Lancaster. At this time, the medical dispensary established by Miss Garrett for women and children in Seymour Place was growing and enlisting a large number of influential friends. From this small beginning has grown the new hospital and London School of Medicine for Women, connected with the Royal Free Hospital. This is not the place to speak of the intelligent and persevering efforts to which those institutions owe their origin, the work of Dr. Garrett Anderson and Dr. Sophia Jex Blake will always be remembered. It was my privilege and pleasure in some small degree to encourage these brave workers in their pioneer enterprise in England. Whilst attending to an increasing medical practice, a visit from Mr. William Pear, who had written an interesting account of the Rallahine land experiment in Ireland, which proved so successful under the management of Mr. E. T. Craig, drew my attention to the important cooperative movement steadily growing in England. Footnote. This remarkable experiment of 1831, with its tragic termination, is related by Mr. Pear, Longman's Green and Company, and by Mr. Craig Trubner. It is well worth the careful study of all cooperative reformers. End footnote. The abortive attempts at cooperative society, which I had watched in the United States, at Brook Farm, Red Bank, 
Eagleswood, and other places, in no way shook the faith that through failure and renewed effort the true principles of a wise organization of human relations would gradually be evolved. The English cooperative movement was characteristic of the common-sense, unambitious way in which reforms grow in England. The religious element introduced by such a noble band of Christian socialists as Maurice, Kingsley, Hughes, and Ludlow gave a hopefulness to this movement which no attempts based on a limited view of material well-being can afford. Medical experience was daily showing the influence of the mind over the body, and I eagerly longed to see an embodiment of Christian principles in society, which embodiment was, as yet, far from attainment. In pursuance of this investigation, at the end of August 1872, I determined to visit the Familistère of Giza, formed by Godin Lemaire. His book, Solutions Sociales, describing the growth of the institution, was exceedingly interesting and contained valuable suggestions for future workers, and I wished to see its practical working for myself. At the end of a fatiguing journey to Giza, on the Belgian frontier of France, for at that time many miles had to be traversed by diligence, I was cordially welcomed by M. Le Maire, and spent several very interesting days in the great Familistère observing the life there. The Familistère, which accommodated several hundred people, was erected on a tract of land almost encircled by the river, which tract was laid out in the gardens and pleasure grounds. Across the river stood the large factories and workshops for the manufacture of stoves, etc., which furnished the remunerative occupation of the little community. I attended the prize-giving at the schools, saw the theater, workmen's club, and choral society, witnessed a ball, and visited the manufactory, the organization was a great object lesson both in its success and its defects. Full of interest to those who seriously study this important subject of improved social relations, the life at the Familistère, however, was intense and rather overpowering to me. Shortly after my return, I was attacked by illness, which proved so serious in its effects that in 1873 the Burwood Place establishment was broken up and my plan of life necessarily changed. During the next three years I vainly endeavored to resume my London work, but was frequently obliged to seek health in change of residence and foreign travel. This travel included a memorable winter in Rome, which need not be further referred to, although the approach to the Eternal City, when across the Campania, the Dome of St. Peter's was first visible, was a thrilling personal joy never to be forgotten. But my purely personal experiences 
will not be dwelt on. End of chapter 7, part 1